Part Two, Chapter Three of Victory: An Island Tale, by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. For fifteen years, Heyst had wandered, invariably courteous and unapproachable, and in return was generally considered a queer chap. He had started off on these travels of his after the death of his father, an expatriated Swede who died in London, dissatisfied with his country and angry with all the world, which had instinctively rejected his wisdom. Thinker, stylist, and man of the world in his time, the elder Heist had begun by coveting all the joys, those of the great and those of the humble, those of the fools and those of the sages. For more than sixty years, he had dragged on this painful earth of ours, the most weary, the most uneasy soul that civilization had ever fashioned to its ends of disillusion and regret. One could not refuse him a measure of greatness, for he was unhappy in a way unknown to mediocre souls. His mother Heist had never known, but he kept his father's pale, distinguished face and affectionate memory. He remembered him mainly in an ample blue dressing-gown, in a large house of a quiet London suburb. For three years after leaving school at the age of eighteen, he had lived with the elder Heist, who was then writing his last book. In this work, at the end of his life, he claimed for mankind that right to absolute moral and intellectual liberty, of which he no longer believed them worthy. Three years of such companionship, at that plastic and impressionable age, were bound to leave in the boy a profound mistrust of life. The young man learned to reflect, which is a destructive process, a reckoning of the cost. It is not the clear-sighted who lead the world. Great achievements are accomplished in a blessed, warm mental fog, which the pitiless, cold blast of the father's analysis had blown away from the sun. All drift, Heist had said to himself deliberately. He did not mean intellectually or sentimentally or morally. He meant to drift altogether, and literally, body and soul, like a detached leaf drifting in the wind currents, under the immovable trees of a forest glade. To drift without ever catching on to anything. This shall be my defense against life he had said to himself, with a sort of inward consciousness, that for the son of his father there was no other worthy alternative. He became a waif and stray, austerely from conviction, as others do through drink from vice, from some weakness of character, with deliberation, as others do in despair. This, stripped of its facts, had been Heist's life up to that disturbing night, Next day, when he saw the girl called Alma, she managed to give him a glance of frank tenderness, quick as lightning and leaving a profound impression, a secret touch on the heart. It was in the grounds of the hotel, about tiffin time, while the ladies of the orchestra were strolling back to their pavilion after rehearsal, or practice, or whenever they called their morning musical exercises in the hall. Heist, returning from the town, where he had discovered that there would be difficulties in the way of getting away at once, was crossing the compound, disappointed and worried, 
he had walked almost unwittingly into the straggling group of Zangiacomo's performers. It was a shock to him, on coming out of his brown study, to find the girl so near to him, as if one waking suddenly should see the figure of his dream turned into flesh and blood. She did not raise her shapely head, but her glance was no dream thing. It was real, the most real impression of his detached existence, so far. Heist had not acknowledged it in any way, though it seemed to him impossible that its effect on him should not be visible to anyone who happened to be looking on. And there were several men on the veranda, steady customers of Schomberg's table d'hote, gazing, in his direction, at the ladies of the orchestra, in fact. Heist read a rose, not out of shame or timidity, but from his fastidiousness. On getting amongst them, however, he noticed no signs of interest or astonishment in their faces, any more than if they had been blind men. Even Schomberg himself, who had to make way for him at the top of the stairs, was completely unperturbed, and continued the conversation he was carrying on with a client. Schomberg, indeed, had observed that Swede, talking with the girl in the intervals. A crony of his had nudged him, and he had thought that it was so much the better. The silly fellow would keep everybody else off. He was rather pleased than otherwise, and watched them out of the corner of his eye, with a malicious enjoyment of the situation, a sort of satanic glee. For he had little doubt of his personal fascination, and still less of his power to get hold of the girl, who seemed too ignorant to know how to help herself, and who was worse than friendless, since she had, for some reason, incurred the animosity of Mrs. Angiacomo, a woman with no conscience. The aversion she showed him as far as she dared, for it is not always safe for the helpless to display the delicacy of their sentiments. Schomberg pardoned on the score of feminine conventional silliness. He had told Alma, as an argument, that she was a clever enough girl to see that she could do no better than to put her trust in a man of substance, in the prime of life, who knew his way about. But for the excited trembling of his voice, and the extraordinary way in which his eyes seemed to be starting out of his crimson, hair-suit countenance, such speeches had every character of calm, unselfish advice, which, after the manner of lovers, passed easily into sanguine plans for the future. "'We'll soon get rid of the old woman,' he whispered to her hurriedly, with panting ferocity. Hang her! I've never cared for her. The climate don't suit her. I shall tell her to go to her people in Europe. She will have to go, too. I will see to it. Eins by March. And then we shall sell this hotel and start another somewhere else. He assured her that he didn't care what he did for her sake, and it was true. Forty-five is the age of recklessness for many men, as if in defiance of the decay and death, waiting with open arms in the sinister valley at the bottom of the inevitable hill. Her shrinking form, her downcast eyes, when she had to listen to him, cornered at the end of an empty corridor, he regarded as signs of submission to the overpowering force of his will, the recognition of his personal fascinations for every age is fed on illusions, lest men should renounce life early, and the human race come to an end. 
It's easy to imagine Schomberg's humiliation, his shocked fury, when he discovered that the girl who had for weeks resisted his attacks, his prayers, and his fiercest protestations, had been snatched from under his nose by that Swede, apparently without any trouble worth speaking of. He refused to believe the fact. He would have it, at first, that the Zangiacomos, for some unfathomable reason, had played him a scurvy trick. But when no further doubt was possible, he changed his view of Heist. The despised Swede became for Schomberg the deepest, the most dangerous, the most hateful of scoundrels. He could not believe that the creature he had coveted with so much force and with so little effect was in reality tender, docile to her impulse, and had almost offered herself to Heist without a sense of guilt, in a desire of safety, and from a profound need of placing her trust where her woman's instinct guided her ignorance. Nothing would serve Schomberg but that she must have been circumvented by some occult exercise of force or craft, by the laying of some subtle trap. His wounded vanity wandered ceaselessly at the means that Swede had employed to seduce her away from a man like him, Schomberg, as though those means were bound to have been extraordinary, unheard of, inconceivable. He slapped his forehead openly before his customers. He would sit brooding in silence, or else would burst out unexpectedly, declaiming against Tice without measure, discretion, or prudence, with swollen features and an affectation of outraged virtue, which could not have deceived the most childlike of moralists for a moment, and greatly amused his audience. It became a recognized entertainment to go and hear his abuse of Heist, while sipping ice drinks on the veranda of the hotel. It was, in a manner, a more successful draw than the Zangiacomo concerts had ever been, intervals and all. There was never any difficulty in starting the performer off. Anybody could do it, by almost any distant illusion. As likely as not, he would start his endless denunciations in the very billiard-room where Mrs. Schomberg sat, enthroned as usual, swallowing her sobs, concealing her tortures of abject humiliation and terror under her stupid, set, everlasting grin, which, having been provided for her by nature, was an excellent mask, inasmuch as nothing, not even death itself perhaps, could tear it away. But nothing lasts in this world, at least without changing its physiognomy. So after a few weeks, Schomberg regained his outward calm, as if his indignation had dried up within him. And it was time. He was becoming a bore with his inability to talk of anything else but Heist's unfitness to be at large, Heist's wickedness, his wiles, his astuteness, and his criminality. Schomberg no longer pretended to despise him. He could not have done it. After what had happened, he could not pretend, even to himself. But his bottled-up indignation was fermenting venomously. At the time of his immoderate loquacity, one of his customers, an elderly man, had remarked one evening, "'If that ass keeps on like this, he will end by going crazy.' And this belief was less than half wrong. Schomberg had heist on the brain. Even the unsatisfactory state of his affairs, which had never been so unpromising since he came out east, 
directly after the Franco-Prussian War. He referred to some subtly nauseous influence of Heist. It seemed to him that he could never be himself again till he had got even with that artful Swede. He was ready to swear that Heist had ruined his life. The girl, so unfairly, craftily, basely decoyed away, would have inspired him to success in a new start. Obviously, Mrs. Schomberg, whom he terrified by savagely silent moods, combined with underhand, poisoned glances, could give him no inspiration. He had grown generally neglectful, but with a partiality for reckless expedients, as if he did not care when and how his career as a hotel-keeper was to be brought to an end. This demoralized state accounted for what Davidson had observed on his last visit to the Schomberg establishment, some two months after Heist's secret departure with the girl, to the solitude of Sam Burren. The Schomberg of a few years ago, the Schomberg of the Bangkok days, for instance, when he started the first of his famed table d'hote dinners, would never have risked anything of the sort. His genius ran to catering, white man for white men, and to the inventing, elaborating, and retailing of scandalous gossip, with asinine unction and impudent delight. But now his mind was perverted by the pangs of wounded vanity and of thwarted passion. In this state of moral weakness, Schomberg allowed himself to be corrupted. End chapter 3